Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 43, The Green Mile by Stephen King. <laughs> Look. <laughs> I don't dim it out, mouse. We say that. Oh, oh, watch this. Watch what he do. <laughs> Ain't he something now? <laughs> He's smart, Mr. Jangles. Mr. Jangles? That his name. He was put in my ear. Hey, Captain, could I have a box for my mouth so he can sleep in there with me? I notice your English gets better when you want something. Want to see what else he can do? Hmm? Watch, watch, watch. Mr. Jangle, Mr. Jangle. Want to play fetch? Want to play fetch? So la 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 Play fetch? Watch, watch, watch. <laughs> <laughs> you fetch it every time. Every time. That's so smart, Mouse Dale. Like he a circus mouse or something. <laughs> Correct. That's just what he is, too. He's a circus mouse. And when I get out of here, he's gonna make me rich. You just watch it. See if you don't do that. We play fish? We play fish again? Well, well, well. Looks like you found yourself a new friend there, Dale. Don't hate him. Okay? Is that the one I chase? Yeah, that's the one. Only Dale says his name is Mr. Jingles. That's so. Dale's been asking for a box. Thinks the mouse will sleep in it, I guess. Might keep it for a pet. What do you think? You know what? We ought to find a cigar box and uh, get some cotton batting from the dispensary to line it with. Yeah. Yeah. That should do real nice. And said get a cigar box. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is basically a book club and each month we choose a book to look at and we discuss it and we think, huh, is this required reading? <laughs> So I am leading us this time with our first Stephen King, and with me is, hmm, the brutal to my edge comb, it is Tom Paneris. 
Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> doing well. I did think about one of us could be Mr. Jingles, but then the other person would have to be Delacroix. Yeah. And I thought, do we do we want to be Delacroix? Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually a question that uh, I'll bring up later. But yeah, yeah. Here we are. This is is this our third episode in quarantine right now, or our second? It might be our third. And I can't, I think we might have recorded forty one was doubt right. I think yes. we recorded 41 just as this was all starting to happen. But I know we recorded Hitchhikers yeah. well under quarantine. Yeah. So, so here we are. So number two, we discovered that we're only about eight miles away from each other just with <laughs> traffic lights and such. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, so, But still a good distance away from each other. Yeah. And our school years have since wrapped up since I guess this is our June episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they will have wrapped up about a week before this drops. Yeah, so it's it was certainly an interesting end to the year. <laughs> um, for me, even more so because it's my last year at the school that I'm teaching at. And uh, my decision, I decided 10 years. I, I put in a good amount of time there, left a legacy, I think. Uh, but the sad part was just having no formal goodbye with the students. And for me, one of the big reasons of teaching is forming good relationships with students. And so I loved this eighth grade class this year. They were great. And then just having other kids that I was close to and not being able to like really say goodbye to them was really rough. So that was, I think, the, the worst part of it all. Yeah, I, I understand that the, the see I like the seniors I had this year and uh, they, yeah, I'm going to miss them. Thankfully, they, they checked in on Zoom last week. We just kind of hung out for 45 minutes, me and a bunch of them. That was pretty that was pretty nice. I really appreciated that. And they've been very, very nice about getting in touch with me and and I with them. So that, that those are some of the connections I made. And I'm hoping to get better at that next year, especially with the freshmen that I teach, because I felt that that was kind of where I fell off this year. Yeah, I was. I went on a walk with someone, a former colleague of mine, and he was talking about, you know, with you know the teenagers that they are currently, and and just haven't matured enough. Like you can reach out or give them, you know, your personal email or you know ask, can we continue writing? But it's just like hard for them to like because they don't, I think, really understand what that necessarily entails or means, and so they don't really keep up with it. So because I've passed along, because there have been some students that have emailed me just a note of thanks of of a great year, and so I've said keep in touch, and then I give them my personal email, and I can only hope that they keep in touch but yeah so we'll see about that i've been so i've been teaching for about 15 years now and um i am facebook friends with a number of former students who are now in their in there or approaching their 30s because my first school year was 2005 2006 and so i have i have former students who are like in their 30s and they have like babies at this point and uh and stuff so that that this has been pretty cool to see them and i run into them sometimes here and there which is which is really nice to see because they're um you know they're 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 a good group and most of them were like former yearbook people that i that i was their advisor so that that, i think that's where we made that particular connection so Mm, yep well uh, this book that we're reading also has to deal with legacy and memory as well so 
kind of picked a good one for that. Yeah. Segway. I know. I did it. So the Green Mile, it's our first Stephen King that was chosen. And I think the obvious pick for a Stephen King could have been The Shining, especially since I had <laughs> actually borrowed it from yeah. you. But I had been in the middle of this with my with the book club at school and uh, the high school book club. And I had not finished it because we hadn't finished it. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to choose this. I'm going to finish it. And then uh, it'll be a good discussion. So sometimes we use this podcast as a way to double for some things. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your history with the Green Mile? Um, this is the first time I've read it. Uh, I actually, and I ha I'm not familiar with them. I've never seen the movie, even though um, I'm pretty familiar with Stephen King. And I, I knew the book. I remember when the book came out, because I remember it coming out, it was serialized. And I remember when that was a big deal, because people were like, you know, amazed that, that he was able to, you know, do what he did as far as publishing it was concerned. Um, at the time, I believe I was in my first or second year of college. And the reason I may have skipped it probably had nothing to do with my reading preferences and everything to do with either not having the money or not having the time and the means to keep track of the books and keep buying them um, or being assigned a lot of other reading that you get assigned in college that reading for fun tends to fall to the wayside until a break or the summer. So it just kind of skipped me by when it came out. And I remember the movie coming out. Um, I remember people saying really good things about the movie, but I never saw it. I actually wasn't very interested in seeing it. And then, uh, and then here we are, uh, you, you, uh, you picked it for this episode. So I went ahead and bought it and, uh, and read it. <laughs> yeah, I had own, well, I knew that it was a book obviously, but I, and, I think I was just more familiar with the film. I knew of it. I, I think I've always had seen the image of like Tom Hanks there, you know, kind of faded the, the poster mm -hmm. and everything. And I knew, of course, yeah, about Michael Clark Duncan, whom I really like. But it had been, yeah, I had never seen it. And then a couple of years ago, I finally sat down and watched it. And so that was my first introduction to it. But that was a few years back. So when I was reading this, I'm, I'm glad that the, the movie was – farther back for me because I could kind of figure out details but I didn't know know it so it wasn't like completely spoiled but I was just remembering things so this is the first time that I have read it it is my third Stephen King I okay. think I did it kind of unconventional I think I read the Dark Tower book one mm -hmm. first and that that was okay. I heard that you have to kind of read all of them, and it gets better than just the first one. And then I read, of course, *The Shining*, which you lent me. Yeah. And now, and now this. So yeah, I'm pretty sure. This is my like 14th or 15th King, because I've read all seven of *The Dark Tower*. Okay. I remember number four of that series being my favorite. *Wizard in Glass* was the name of it. Um, and I, I did enjoy the ending of the, of the last book of the series, but I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I'm trying to think of the other ones I've read, The Shining, Carrie, <laughs> some of the stuff from the 90s, for some reason, not this. So, um, But yeah, no, uh, Stephen King has a very long presence in, in, my, in my house because my parents read a lot of Stephen King. Gotcha. So, yeah. It was always yeah, on the shelf. Like 
I feel like I've seen more Stephen King than I have mm. actually read it. Probably, you know, those AMC like horror fests that they would have. I've yeah. seen like Pet Cemetery and I don't know that I've actually, I know so much about Carrie, but I've actually yet to watch it. And then I, uh, it holds a special yeah. place in my heart. Um, so th- there are those, but yeah. Which, and this was which also version? Cause it's not, <laughs> oh yeah, no, the, I would, the TV one. The Tim Curry Tim one. Curry, yeah, yes, me too. The one that has a, like, I'm very nostalgic for that. And yeah. mom and I watched that when I was in, I don't know, either late middle school or early high school. And because of that, when the new one came out, I was like, Mom, we have to go see this. And so I could tell all sorts of stories about that. Yeah, yeah. that that aired when I was in um, between like summer between seventh and eighth grade or something like that or, or right around the time I was in eighth grade. And uh, so I, 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 I tape, remember taping it off the television and watching it. Uh, with a couple of friends, so that yeah, that 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 has a very like that's another one that's just stamped in my memory as as a benchmark yeah. work of both literature because I read the book before I watched the movie, um, and then and then the movie itself, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this one is also an unconventional pick because it's not really horror. Mm-hmm. I, I would say there is some suspense involved in it, but it's certainly not. Cause when you think of Stephen King, I think you think horror. Mostly. Yeah. It's not like Salem's lot or, or, uh, or pet cemetery or Cujo or something like that. Yep. So let me tell you a bit about, a bit about Stephen King mm-hmm. and the book, and then I will get into a plot synopsis. So Stephen Edwin King was born in Portland, Maine, which makes sense because some of his books are taking place in Maine, on September 21st, 1947. Once they married, they lived with his father's parents in Chicago before they moved to Croton-on-Hudson, New York. <laughs> and then they returned to Maine towards the end of World War II, living in a modest house in Scarborough. When King was two years old, his father left the family, and uh, his mother raised him and his brother, David, by herself, sometimes under great financial strain. King was raised Methodist, but lost his belief in organized religion while in high school. While no longer religious, he says he chooses to believe the existence of God. As a child, King apparently witnessed one of his friends being struck and killed by a train, though he has no memory of the event. His family told him that after leaving home to play with the boy, King returned speechless and seemingly in shock. Only later did the family learn of the friend's death. Some commentators have suggested that this event may have psychologically inspired some of King's darker works, which we've, I think that was a discussion, or someone asked us that once before, that do we ever wonder about people, you know, looking at authors' biographies mm-hmm. and to, to see what is inspired. Because you kind of have to wonder with horror writers yeah. you know, what has inspired it. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, especially since there are authors whose whose experiences so directly inspire what they're writing to the point where right. the characters are almost they're all almost like semi-autobiographical in yeah, terms like, of what they're writing their yeah. fiction girl with the dragon tattoo would be mm-hmm. such an example 
King actually makes no mention of this event in his memoir on writing, which was published in 2000. He related in detail his primary inspiration for writing horror fiction in his nonfiction Dance Macabre in 1981 in a chapter titled An Annoying Autobiographical Pause. He compared his uncle's dowsing for water using the bow of an apple branch with the sudden realization of what he wanted to do for a living. That inspiration occurred while browsing through an attic with his elder brother when King uncovered a paperback version of an H.P. Lovecraft collection of short stories he remembers as The Lurker in the Shadows that had belonged to his father. King told Barnes & Noble Studios during a 2009 interview, I knew that I'd found home when I read that book. He attended elementary school, obviously. He displayed an interest in horror and an avid reader of EC horror comics, including Tales from the Crypt, and he later paid tribute to the comics in his screenplay for Creepshow. He began writing for fun while still in school, contributing articles to Dave's Rag, the newspaper his brother published with a mimeograph machine, and later began selling stories to his friends based on movies he had seen. <laughs> he was for- <laughs> he was forced to return the profits, though, when discovered by his teachers. So there you go. The first of his stories to be independently published was I Was a Teenage Grave Robber, which was serialized over four issues. So there's the serialization there. Three published and one unpublished of a fanzine comics review in 1965. That story was published that following year in a revised form as In a Half World of Terror in another fanzine, Stories of Suspense, edited by Tom's favorite, Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman. (laughs) As a teen, King also won a Scholastic Art and Writing Award. He studied at the University of Maine, graduating in 1970 with a Bachelor of Arts in English, and that same year his daughter Naomi Rachel was born. He wrote a column, Steve King's Garbage Truck, for his student newspaper, the Maine Campus, and he held a variety of jobs to pay for his studies, including janitor, gas pump attendant, and worker at an industrial laundry. Uh, His future wife was also a fellow student at the university's library. In 1967, he sold his first professional short story, The Glass Floor, to Startling Mystery Stories in 1967. After he graduated, he earned a certificate to teach high school, but unable to find a teaching post immediately, initially supplemented his laboring wage by selling short stories to men's magazines such as Cavalier. He was later hired as a teacher at Hampton Academy in Hamden, Maine, and he continued to contribute short stories to magazines and worked on ideas for novels. In 1973, King's novel Carrie was accepted by publishing house Doubleday. Carrie was King's fourth novel, but it was the first to be published. It was written on a portable typewriter that belonged to his wife, and it began as a short story intended for Cavalier magazine, but King tossed the first three pages of his work in the garbage can, and his wife actually fished the pages out of the garbage can and encouraged him to finish the story, saying that she would help him with the female perspective. So, The Green Mile was first published in six low-priced paperback volumes. The first subtitled The Two Dead Girls was published on May 28, 1996, with new volumes following monthly until the final volume, Coffee on the Mile, was released in August 29. 1996. It won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel in 1996. In 97, the Green Mile was nominated as Best Novel for the British Fantasy Award and the Locus Award. And then in 2003, the book was listed on the BBC's The Big Read poll of the UK's Best Loved Novel. Frank Darabont 
adapted the novel into a screenplay for a feature film of the same name released in 99 and it was directed by Darabont and it starred Tom Hanks as Paul Edgecombe and Michael Clark Duncan as John Coffey. The setting changed slightly uh, from 1932 to 1935 in order to include the film Top Hat which does not appear in the book. A strange detail there. And the film was actually nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor for Duncan. And uh, before you get into synopsis, two bits of trivia. Frank Darabont also directed the other Stephen King adaptation that takes place in a prison and was also nominated for Best Picture in 1984. He directed The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, and if you are familiar with the comic and novel writer Joe Hill, who yes. uh, that is his son, Stephen King's son. Um, and uh, if you is it really yes, and if you see it, the writer of Lock and King, yes, Lock and King, yes, okay. Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. If you see a wow. picture of Joe Hill, you can tell he looks exactly okay. like his father. I have been reading um, Lock and Key. I have never read the book, but I've I've seen the uh, the Netflix show, which is really good. I'm reading one of Joe Hill's comics right now, The Plunge. I think it's called. It's about a like a haunted submarine or something. It's it's the the issues I've read so far are really really good. So that's a recommendation, and I would recommend on writing. I think I might I might have mentioned it on a previous episode, but it's a great memoir and it's a great book about the craft of writing as well okay all right i'll let you get back Thank to your you. synopsis you're welcome no that works okay so that's just a little bit about king obviously he's a prolific writer so you could go on and on with all that information but i'm going to get into now the plot synopsis of the green mile book from the relative tranquility of his nursing home, Georgia Pines, Paul Edgecombe recounts his time as a death row supervisor of Cold Mountain Penitentiary in 1932. As his narrative shifts back and forth between 1932 and the present, Paul explains that his goal in recounting this earlier period of his life is to provide a detailed account of one time during his career when he had serious doubts about his job. At Cold Mountain, Paul supervises E-Block, the equivalent of what is commonly known as death row. E-Block has the nickname the Green Mile because of the color of the tiles in the long corridor leading up to the electric chair, where condemned inmates await executions in their cells. Paul believes in showing compassion toward the death row prisoners. He and his colleagues Brutal, Harry, and Dean are constantly frustrated by the behavior of Percy Wetmore, a young guard who behaves cruelly toward the inmates, making the atmosphere on E-Block violent and unpredictable. After the execution of the chief, a Native American convicted for drunkenly killing a man in a fight, and the transfer of the prez, who murdered his father by throwing him out of a window, to another section of the prison, Edward Delacroix arrives on E-Block. His arrival is marked by chaos and brutality, as Percy violently drags him into the corridor, insults him, and hits him with his baton. Paul scolds Percy for his behavior, but the young man, who trusts that his political connections can protect him in any situation, feels no sense of remorse, developing instead a growing hatred toward Delacroix. And I should say at least, because I think this detail will come up, that I think Delacroix, if I remember correctly, like accidentally touched Percy's uh, private area, like something, it, like he, his hand grazed it. I'm, I think that's what it was, because that sort of like, 
I don't know, self-consciousness or fear props, pops up again with, with Percy. So it's a detail that I should at least include. I think he falls or stumbles and he like, I can't remember. Anyways, one evening when Delacroix is heard laughing in his cell, the guards discover that he is playing with the mouse that appeared on E-Block a few weeks earlier. At the time of the mouse's first appearance, the rodent had amazed the guards with this quasi-human intelligence, having shown signs that it was looking for someone. Paul later realizes the mouse had been looking for none other than Edward Delacroix. The mouse, whom Delacroix calls Mr. Jingles, becomes the inmate's faithful pet and entertains the guards with various tricks. In particular, Mr. Jingles enjoys running after a wooden spool that Delacroix hits against his cell's wall. He also likes peppermints. A week later, or a few weeks later, John Coffey arrives on E-Block. Paul describes him as a giant, a towering black man who makes everything a around him appear ridiculously small. After giving Coffee the usual speech he reserves for new inmates, Paul realizes that Coffee is soft-spoken and almost completely illiterate. Paul is startled by the peaceful gentleness that emanates from Coffee's eyes, a strange tranquility that makes the man look absent and lost. Spurred by a curiosity that later turns into an obsession, Paul searches for details about John Coffey's crime. He discovers that Coffey was charged with the rape and murder of two nine-year-olds, the Detrick twins. One summer morning, the two girls who had been sleeping out on their porch are found missing, the family dog strangled to death. A search party is called to look for the two girls, and the searchers ultimately find John Coffey holding the bloodied dead bodies of the Detrick twins, whose heads have been smashed together. Crying ceaselessly, moved by desperation and grief, Collie's attitude appears to be a clear indication of guilty. Coffey is soon arrested and swiftly sentenced to death for his crime. In the meantime, a young new inmate arrives on E-Block, William Wharton, a cruel murderer who plays violent tricks on the guards with a persistence that Paul finds terrifying. Wharton is often punished for his actions, forced into a straitjacket and confined to the restraint room for a few days, but never modifies his behavior. Oh, it sounds like a middle score. The same day as Wharton's arrival, Coffee urgently calls Paul into his cell, saying he needs to talk to him. Paul, who has been suffering from an excruciatingly painful urinary infection, I have started to tell you about that sits not about the about his infection not about an infection of mine sits down on coffee's bunk and coffee suddenly touches paul's groin sending a flow of painless energy through paul's body after coffee coughs up a cloud of black insects that turn white and vanish paul stands up and realizes that his urinary infection is entirely gone let me just say that reading this book with uh, I don't know, 14 to 16, 17-year-olds is really interesting. And one of them kept being like, why do we, why such detail on his urinary tract infection? Like all of this stuff. So each time we had to read and then come together, I thought about that girl and thought, uh-oh, how'd you deal with this? And she's like, it's, it just keeps on going. Anyway, so there you go. That was my story. Coffee performs a second miraculous healing a few weeks later, on the day of Delacroix's ex execution. When Delacroix throws Mr. Jingles' spool against the wall a bit too hard, causing Mr. Jingles to exit the cell, Percy takes the opportunity to violently crush the mouse under his shoe. A few seconds later, from within his cell, Coffee tells Paul to give him the mouse. Paul hands it to him, and the inmate holds the mouse inside his hands, breathes in, releases a cloud of black insects that turn white and disappear. The next moment, Mr. Jingles emerges from Coffee's hands alive and well. The guards look on, utterly dumbfounded. 
That same night, Percy takes his, ex his greatest revenge on Delacroix. He intentionally sabotages Delacroix's execution, failing to wet the sponge that is typically used to conduct electricity through the condemned man's head. As a result, Delacroix suffers an agonizing, minutes-long death on the electric chair, during which he essentially burns alive. Furious about Percy's loathsome action, the guards make Percy promise to apply to transfer to a job at Briar Ridge Psychiatric Hospital the next day so that they might be rid of him. In order to atone for Delacroix's horrific death, Paul decides to use John Coffey's powers to perform a good deed. He convinces brutal Harry and Dean to take part in an expedition to heal the warden's wife, Melinda Moores, of her recently diagnosed brain cancer. After sedating William Wharton with a strong drug and locking Percy up in the restraint room, the men drive John Coffey to Warden Moore's house. There, Coffey heals Melinda in the same way he previously healed Paul and Mr. Jingles. This time, however, Coffey is unable to cough up the black insects, and the guards notice that he begins to suffer from the same symptoms of which he relieved Melinda. The guards successfully return to prison, bringing a weakened Coffey back to his cell, and let Percy out of the restraint room. However, before Percy has a chance to leave the Green Mile, Coffey suddenly grabs him through the bars of his cell. He forces Percy's lips against his and transfers to him the illness that he had, had absorbed from Melinda Moores. Percy's eyes go blank, and after taking a few uncertain steps, he suddenly shoots into, like shoots his gun, into William Wharton's cell multiple times, killing the sedated inmate in his sleep. Percy never regains his sanity, but instead is sent as a patient to the psychiatric hospital where he had applied to work. As the official investigation surrounding Warren's death comes to an end and the date of Coffey's execution approaches, Paul conducts an investigation of his own that leads him to confirm his long-held suspicion that Coffey is innocent. In the process, he discovers that William Wharton is the true rapist and murderer of the Detrick girls. John Coffey later confirms this fact, telling Paul that once, when Wharton grabbed John's arm, John was able to see inside Wharton's mind and learn about what Wharton did to the Detrick twins. The discovery of Wharton's guilt is what spurred Coffey to make Percy kill warden on e-block disturbed by the idea of executing an innocent man paul reveals what he has learned to his wife janice and colleagues however faced with the fact that it would be impossible to justify coffee's innocence without referring to his special powers in addition to the fact that the racist justice system would never agree to reopen the case of a black man convicted of murder as said by the people in charge actually paul and his friends are forced to recognize that they will not be able to save coffee's life the guards must thus prepare for Coffey's execution with heavy hearts, feeling shameful for executing an innocent man with God-given healing powers. Coffey, however, claims that he is able to die so that he may escape the cruelties of the world. Paul's account in 1932 ends with John Coffey's death on the electric chair, the very last execution of his career. Once Paul finishes writing down his narrative at the nursing home, he shows his story to his special friend, Elaine Connolly. Special friend, yes. He then brings her to a secret shed in the woods, that sounds sketchy, where he shows her oh, Mr. Jingles, who is still alive. He explains that when Coffee touched Mr. Jingles, he made him resistant to the effects of aging. Paul also reveals that he himself is resistant to aging. He's like 100 years old or something. After Elaine dies a few months later, Paul is left to reflect on the difficulty of his present life. 
He recalls his wife Janice's brutal death in a bus accident, during which he believes he saw Coffee's ghost looking at him from a distance. At the nursing home, Paul feels alone in the world, left only with the memories of those he has loved and lost. While he knows that everyone is bound to die, he laments his current state in which he must wait joylessly for his own death, as though this life were but a longer version of the Green Mile. And I should say, because that synopsis didn't say it, that he has there's an antagonist at the later in these parts of the book as well mm-hmm. this guy named brad dolan yeah. i think his name is and he is an orderly and he's abusive i mean people talk about elderly abuse mm-hmm. at these homes i mean that's basically what it is and he wants to know what paul does down at the shed and he just bosses him around and but something i really like about elaine is like she she stands up for Paul and, and um, bosses Brad around and everything. And so. Paul keeps comparing him to Percy, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Yes, which is an interesting thing. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so there was that. And I just want to also say about the synopsis that I went in chronological order mm-hmm. in the synopsis, but that is not how the book is written, which is actually probably going to be my first question. Okay. But b- before that, did you enjoy this book? I did with a couple of reservations that will come up in our in our uh, discussion. But okay. it, it's – one thing I liked about it is that it didn't tie into a larger world that King has because some of some of his novels, especially as he got later and later into the Dark Tower series, like he would do novels that had some sort of tangential relationship to either the Dark Tower or Castle Rock, which is one of the towns in Maine where he sets a lot of things or Derry or whatever. This did not. They're not. He's not slave to continuity in that way, like comic book fans are. But this had no connection to any of that, so I kind of appreciated that it standed on its own. And it's it's a suspenseful book that kept me going and kept me wanting to read, even when some of the things that I didn't like about it were a little too upfront. So so yeah, I, I didn't. I had an enjoyable experience reading this. Yeah, and I also liked it. I often, you know, you have to be cautious, with, especially, you know, the the school that I worked at. What what book are you choosing for, mm. for book club? But it turned out, uh, I think, well, we didn't finish it, which is a bummer, though I think they might have a desire to do like a Zoom call and talk about the rest of it. Cool. But I very much enjoyed it, and I think it, it sits, it doesn't sit well only reading a section a week mm. because – Especially with just how it is formatted, because it was originally, you know, the the six little, the little yeah, it was serialized pamphlets, but like yeah, novellas serialized. almost. Yeah, but it, you know, to actually sit down and and consistently read it would be better. But no, I enjoyed the characters, mm-hmm. and it is. I think it it reads well. Like I, I like how King wrote it. So. There we go. So, yeah, my first question beyond that, then, is the fact that it is not written in chronological order. It does go back and forth. It goes back and forth in terms of the Green Mile versus the nursing home. But it also goes back and forth just on the Green Mile. Like, that skips around. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have to have – and I think even Paul says that there are certain points in his narrative that are, like – key timeline points like when coffee got there and things so you ha- just have to figure out like what was before coffee what was after coffee things like yeah that. why why do you think king chooses to write in this manner and how does it enhance the narrative he's uh, he employing the framing device 
and then having having the frame having the inner story catch up to the outer story something he's done before um in some cases he's done it where it's like so parallel that like like with it it has it has a very similar structure in that there are you know there's a lot that takes place in the present and then there's there's constant the story that's also being told along parallel lines in the past um from the point of view of, of several different characters as opposed to one and uh in this case i think I think it reveals I think it reveals a lot about the narrator himself because you're you're getting this from the perspective of one person as opposed to this being a third person narrative or something. So you have to decide whether or not you trust Paul as a narrator and a protagonist in this story and I think you get some sympathy for him um, and you get a little bit more of who he is as the narrator telling you the story when you're in the nursing home with him, as opposed to if we just stayed, if, if it was uh, like a, like it's a kill a mockingbird situation where scout is narrating. This as an adult looking back on the incident when she was younger, but she never returns to her adulthood throughout the novel. There's just like one sentence toward the beginning saying that, you know, when my brother, I remember when my brother was so many years old and he broke his arm or something like that here by constantly going back to Frank, uh, as he's old, I think we build up our trust in the narrator. And, and I think it helps us see this and believe this, fantastical story that he's telling that couldn't possibly be real you mean paul right paul sorry okay i was just trying to think who was frank the director of the film <laughs> okay i got it. my bad okay no no i just wanted yeah, to, yeah, just just to clarify some that i didn't miss something no yeah and i think it's it's interesting because you don't get old paul right off the bat mm. so you i think you believe him pretty easily in the beginning and then after you figure out oh he's in this nursing home yeah. he's trying to remember these things then you're like oh well what you know how reliable is this potential narrator i think it's also a good way because it's serialized i think it's also an interesting way for stephen king to have cliffhangers Mm -hmm. because each of the parts ends in like a certain like (gasps) you know what's going to happen sort of way so in in having it in a different order especially you know with the because most of the cliffhangers i think end with the the green mile rather than the the nursing home yeah it it makes you like it's holds you in suspense you're really looking forward to what's happening next and then you open up in the next chapter most likely will be the nursing home <laughs> and you you kind of have to go go through and do that so it's almost like paul is your friend your grandfather or so and you're visiting him in the home and one day he just starts telling you the story you know your time there is up you have to go he has to go whatever but he leaves you on a cliffhanger and you're like, Oh, well, I'll see you next week, grandpa. And you come back and then he, then he's, then he's coming in and he's like, Hey, how are you doing? And let's sit down and let's continue the story. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Like it's like visiting an old friend or an old man in a home. So maybe that's one of the things he was trying to do there. Yeah, very much so. And just like, 
you would want, you know, someone tries to bring you up to speed of remember last time mm-hmm. we were talking about that da, 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 cuz that certainly happens, yes. which I think yes. King has to do because of the way it's published yeah. but yeah it works out that and way. So we really you cool. and I have read enough read enough old comic books that have multiple multi-part storylines that mm-hmm. it didn't even register to me that that's what he, that's why he was employing that storytelling trope as well yeah. cuz I'm used to it. Do you think it would have uh changed had it been in chronological order? Possibly, I don't think it would have been as effective. I really do think that the that the framing device really serves the narrative very well. Um, I think we would have been very interested in it, but he builds a mystery over who he himself is over the course of the time in the nursing home, and he builds up the antagonists. You know, um, like would there have been an would there have been a reason for there to be Elaine or or Elaine is the name of the girlfriend, right? Um, or uh, Dolan or any of the other drama in the nursing home if he had just told the story chronologically. Because, like, if he's telling the story chronologically and it's, like, all of a sudden I'm in the home and, like, all this stuff is happening, it's like, well, where did these people come from? You know, if you're, like, in the third if, – if your main story is John Coffey and John Coffey's dead and then all of a sudden you've got, like, two or three more characters – those two or three more characters um, are not necessary to the plot at that point because the plot's done in our mind, and we're like, "Well, where did these people come from?" So if you start the if you start them off with introducing those characters earlier, and they're in and out of his room, and one of them's harassing him, and one of him is is essentially his girlfriend, that builds a mystery as to what's going to happen to him at the end because we want to see how that resolves, and it also kind of it in introduces a mystery of filling in the blank of the years between the John Coffey incident and the home because we don't know how he got there. We don't know what happened to his wife. Like, you know, and and, and and King does a very good job of setting some of that stuff up because he mentions it briefly and in passing here and there, and then he comes back to it later. It's a very well-structured book. Yeah, and I mean the wife, that mm-hmm. that's the last two to three pages. Yeah. Of the entire novel, because it, it was just mentioned in passing how he lost his wife, and you're like, oh, you know, what what does that mean exactly? Was it natural causes? Was it something tragic? And But really, you don't get the full brunt, I think, of what happened to her mm-hmm. until you know what has transpired with Paul, that he has outlived everyone, so that probably helped him surviving that catastrophic bus accident. Mm-hmm. And then also, coffee helping mrs moore melinda because there was a connection there with her seeing john Mm -hmm. and then yeah so it all it all comes together so this this leads into my next one you taught me about chekhov's gun (laughs) and i feel like there are a couple in this novel in my opinion i mean i could be using it incorrectly but i mean the the biggest one for me was the uti Mm-hmm. And this was something, you know, again, I was in a book club with young women. And so th- talking about that, I think he like talks about his penis. And you're like, oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. Girl. Like, there we are. I'm so sorry. But we're we're this is you chose this book. And but like you wonder why is there so much focus on this UTI? Why also this focus on Melinda? And, you know, because the warden's not too big of a character. Would you consider these Chekhov's guns? Uh, does he, I mean, does King do a good job with these? Could you tell right away that, oh, something's got to happen with this? Yeah, because the, the, 
UTI is a plot device for us to discover what John Coffey's power is. Because I think it's one of the first times we see his power, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. It is. I think it's the first time we see his power. So that is a that is a well done device and a UTI is not comfortable. It's very painful. Um, the only other thing I can think of that, um, and, and when you're dealing with a male character having something wrong with his penis in some way, whether it be, you know, um, reproductive or it be urinary is, I think is, is a way of emasculating that character even so slightly. I think there's, there's that part of it. He reinvigorates him because there are, there are moments where he, he lays down with his wife and there's a vitality to, to that, that wasn't there when he had the UTI. And I mean, it would have been the same if it was like a kidney stone or something, you know, like still, still really, really painful in that way. So I think that's where the UTI comes in handy. You said the other one was Melinda, the 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 yeah. wife, which which we'll talk about a little bit more later because her scene of being cured is really really well written, and reminds me when you get to it reminds me of a particular religious sacrament or procedure. I I know that they hinted that enough, and it's very it's very important because it shows how far they have come in terms of a relationship with this guy and how he has grown on them and how they have grown as characters. So she exists as, um, she's not fridged in that way because she lives, but she's almost kind of a plot device in herself to show how these men have grown in terms of their affection for this prisoner. Uh, the other, Chekhov's gun, I think, in the present day, part of the narrative is the shed. Like, yeah, sooner or sure. later, we're going to find out why he keeps going into the woods. I mean, you know, I know mm-hmm. Dolan keeps bugging him about it. And, and at first, you think he's just harassing him. and But, like, what's back? But then after a while, you're like, yeah, what's back there? So that, and we find out it's Mr. Jingles and everything. So so that's another one where it's like, this has to pay off later. And, and he, he sets it up pretty well. Yeah, he certainly does. I think beyond just like the strange question of why are we focusing much on a UTI, <laughs> uh, it comes through. And that's what I tried to tell my, my book club girls that I think, you know, I think there's a reason for this. So I think we should, you know, lean into it and be like, what what is this going to lead to? And it certainly does. I think if it had gone on much longer, it would have been too much. Yeah. And with Melinda Moore, I think that you – I don't want to say want, but I think seeing that process of degradation happen and the effect on the warden mm-hmm. and everything, like her turning into like this grotesque image of herself with, with her her mouth and the mouth as in like the words that she's yeah yeah and, yeah, and it just this process and process and then it's a way also to be like you know John Coffee is this gift from God. We let this terrible thing happen to Delacroix. Is there a way that we can almost make amends? Mm-hmm. Uh, through someone else, which, you know, we can talk about because that in, in a way uses coffee like he's being used, even though yeah. he's willing to be used. But it's really something to talk about. What was Telecroix in for? He I can't try did, to remember. He raped somebody mm-hmm. and murdered them. And then to hide the murder, he burned 
that person or the house, uh, but okay. there were other people in the house uh, okay. who killed like several, several people. Okay, because I'm, I'm thinking like it's because of the way there's a there's something about I just think with the, with the UTI and him carrying an UTI, there's something about Paul's own sense of manliness, but not in a toxic way that is restored in a sense because it's it's the 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 times he has he has, has sex with his wife um are shown as rom- romantic in a sense there there there's a mutual love between them it's it's just it's a marriage you know so it's it's in this this affection between two people in a very positive way whereas every other just every other something involving sex with a lot of the characters is the act of rape so i I think there's something there as well no i would agree yeah that was certainly one of my questions because there are maybe three or so love scenes between paul and his wife and they occur really after the uti because i think his wife wants to have sex mm-hmm. but he has the uti and i don't think he's very capable <laughs> yeah he is he's not capable so i think you're right about the vitality yeah. and i also think it's more of a positive look at a relationship between a man and a woman where sex is involved whereas you're right all these other interactions especially on the mile or perhaps how speak people on the mile or those inmates in particular speak of women it's all really negative and so i think it's a it's a contrast between that and you know in that way i think shows what type of human being and character paul is because he seems stand up to us of course you know he's the narrator but you can also see i think in his actions and Mm -hmm. his behavior that he is that type of person and janice I don't know how much agency she has as a female character. She's very much just a wife character, but yeah. she is a strong wife character in that she is very supportive and motivating for him in a way that feels very natural as far as those types of relationships are. And I know she dies toward the end of the novel, but she dies several years after this all happens. So the motivation for him to do the right thing has nothing to do with her death. And I think that's, it's just something to note because we've seen so many times where the, you know, there's a, a female character who dies for the, in the service of making the male character better. I think this is just now granted, she's kind of just a supporting doting wife, but there is just a little bit of a strength to her as well. And I, I appreciated I just appreciated him showing all of that, even if he, you know, even if he didn't really make her that as well developed as a character, as I guess some would say. Yeah, I am glad, though, that she was involved in at least the last table meeting, Mm -hmm. because leading up to that point, she was just like, you know, I don't think I want to know what you're going to be involved in. And she would just make the food and then leave. But that last one, they were actually planning what to do. No. It wasn't that. It was the um, John Coffey's Innocent, I think, discussion. And she even gets upset and, like, you know, has her Jesus moment and overturns all of the food and everything. Uh, Was, yeah, really interesting that she was finally engaged in that and everything. So Um, this was a question that we – I kind of was thinking about with our empathy episode and so I think I made mention of it Mm -hmm. and now that we've both read it we can talk about it 
should we feel bad? Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me who've had some empathy towards Delacroix, but should we feel bad having empathy or having compassion for some of these characters knowing what they have done? So I just reminded you, I told listeners what Delacroix had done. With I mean, not knowing what he had done, like he's, you know, a weaker character. He seems, you know, sweet on, you know, just him and his mouse and uh, he needs to be protected by other people. And so like I, you know, feel bad for him and should I feel bad about feeling bad for some of these uh, characters. And and even we could say Coffee without knowing that he was innocent, just looking at him, knowing what his crime was in parentheses and kind of feeling for this guy who just constantly cries day in and day out. I mean, should we feel bad for feeling for these characters? I guess we'll get to Coffee a little bit later in some more depth. I feel like we're set up to believe Coffee's innocent the entire novel. I just I feel I, I it, it's one of the one of the things where I felt that was predictable that like somebody's gonna find out that and I didn't think that it was um what's his name uh William, William Wharton that did it I just had a feeling no somebody else did this it just it was you know it was just too it was it was too easy to call that now that aside with Delacroix. I felt for him – I liked him as a character and I felt for him during the execution not because he is dying because he – because all the men they send to the chair seem to be just about ready. There's a certain level of acceptance a lot of them have. Like the guy they send toward the beginning of the novel, the, the chief, there's a, there's a certain level of acceptance there or at least stoicism in there and – you kind of even despite what he may have done you respect that with Delacroix's execution the villain in that whole scene is clearly Percy who <laughs> and and you know the the victim's wa- mother or wife or whatever is in the room and she's like you know yeah I want to see this guy fry you know she's really vocal and this starts happening and you know you and i are in a country that protects us from cruel and unusual punishment so your my values as an american who believes firmly in the bill of rights are like what percy does to him is unconscionable it is cruel and unusual punishment despite what delacroix had done he had accepted his fate as far as he was going to be executed it is within his right to have that be swift and have it be done and and not to on, on that thing. So that's where I feel some that's where I feel bad for him in some regard as well. The pol- the kind of the the political slash moral righteous outrage I have because of the way Percy is just a, a, a nasty human being and uh, does not care about the rights that these prisoners actually have despite what they did, you know you still you still adhere to basic human rights. So there's a more of there's a philosophical aspect to it in my mind. Do you feel bad feeling for him? Uh, not at the moment where he of his execution. I think earlier on in parts, I feel uneasy that I'm having sympathy for some for for him and um, him especially because he, King sets him up to be very likable, and the guy admits to what he did. 
so I, I, I feel there is that cognitive dissonance of like, I like this guy, but he is a horrible human being. It's not why I truly feel bad for him when during the moment of his execution because of, of, of how it goes. Yeah, because I feel for him, oh, just he's mistreated, I think, the entire time, and he's kind of the guy who is constantly bullied mm -hmm. and can't defend himself, and so I feel for him, and then you find out, of course... What he's in for, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Why and, he's and there. you're like, oh, yeah. man, yeah, and so you just kind of wonder about that, and so I think that almost speaks to King's ability as a writer, mm -hmm that he makes you feel for someone who's done this really terrible thing. And I, I think you sh should, you know, as human beings, I think there is the hope that you're showing empathy to no matter, you know, who that person is. Cause the part of the, the thing with empathy is that you may not agree with what, yeah. you know, that person had done, but the, you're, you're reaching out to them in a, in your, capacity as humans mm -hmm. um so part of me does you know somewhat feel a bit bad but also i feel like you know you could tell that he regret it he's not like william wharton i think i would have a problem if i was feeling bad for william yeah. wharton. but with you know percy he I, I think he does show remorse for what had happened i mean he certainly didn't intend to kill all those people in the um yeah in the house and everything and and uh yeah so he's not pathological, I would say, like like the yep. other guy. And yeah, you're right. I mean, with John Coffey, I think yes, it was set up that we we probably thought he was innocent the entire mm. time. But just even stepping back from that and him being just this gentle giant, Paul is drawn to him for some reason. He's crying all the time. I mean, there's got to be something about that big guy. And Wharton is like your t is a very uh, is a, is a type of character that King's done before the the psych psychotic the sociopathic type i go to the two bullies in it H henry and patrick i think are their names i don't remember the last name henry's the one that gets caught in the lights and becomes pennywise's uh yeah. Renf renfield is that the name of the dracula guy and uh patrick is Patrick has a moment where in the novel where you can clearly see that as a young teen, he is going to be a serial killer. I don't think he makes it that far. I think he gets killed at one point when he's young, but he's like killing animals and he's displaying very deviant behavior. And it's clear that he is way more on the sort of Jeffrey Dahmer sociopath line than your psychotic henry line or somebody like ace in the body slash stand by me you know the the type of person that's it's a character that's that king's done before and here he took it beyond just um teenagers and took it to an adult and and put him in a prison and it was basically made him like the worst out of an entire group and had a sadistic prison guard there with him as well so uh, moving on to old Sparky, do you feel like he it, it? Sorry, do you feel like it is a character? Old Sparky, sorry, the electric is the chair. chair is the name for the chair. Yeah, the electric chair. Do you feel like old Sparky is a character, and do you think there is significance in the fact that the prisoners actually have to bend down in order to get into the room that houses old Sparky? I wonder if there's like a genuflecting going on there, like. Like they're forced to pay their respects to the power of what they're about to be put through, or maybe I'm reading into that too much. 
you know, like you bow, you bow yeah. before it. I would say old Sparky is a character in a sense, you know, uh, in the same way that oh, a cowboy's horse, like a t- like a silver or something in the Lone Ranger might yeah. be a character in that sense, because they do have a relationship in a way with it, you know, so it's that you know there's a little bit of personification going on there that they they treat old sparky like another part of the crew Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah i agree with you i i think it is a character i think it's always there in the back of people's minds to a certain Mm -hmm. extent that you know that is at the end of the green mile that is your destination and almost anthropomorphic and you know how king writes it um i mean it's not talking or anything but just the fact that you know it is mentioned it's given this name it's talked about as if it were a character and i i agree with you i think it is genuflection i think it is it sort of reminds me of here's you know some roman nerdiness but if when the romans defeated somebody or it could be uh another uh race of people defeating the romans they would put two spears crossed into the ground and so the the defeated army would have to cross underneath these or walk underneath these and in so doing you're actually bowing to your enemy and so that is in a sense of of what i see the fact that everyone no matter who has to bow in order to get into that and sort of like old sparky is it's not the warden it's old sparky who is reigning supreme on on e-block there uh, Mr. Jingles, let's talk about this little guy. So why is he significant to the novel? Do you believe that he could be a spiritual force? And do you think Mr. Jingles is more than just an intelligent mouse? I think that Mr. Jingles, this is something that that's later on our list so we can start covering it here, I guess. I think Mr. Jingles is an example of how King is using magical realism a little bit and magical realism or magic realism uh, and according to wikipedia anyway is a style of fiction that paints a realistic view of the modern world while also adding magical elements the magical or the supernatural is presented in an otherwise real world or mundane setting commonly seen in novels dramatic performances and there's this sense of of no need to explain the magic within that world it just appears and it is you kind of accept it um you don't explain like how somebody got their powers or something which we see with like coffee and i think jingles might be there there might be a spiritual force to it it might just be he might be an intelligent mouse or some sort of guide to something um but i think Mm -hmm. i think that we accept that mr jingles can exist the way he does because Especially when we see what coffee is able to do, and we ex- we um, coffee never has an origin for his powers, and we accept that we don't. I didn't need it, and so with Jingles, I'm like, yeah, he's. I mean, maybe he's one of the escaped rats of Nim, but I mean, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one, sir. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, I just kind of accept that he's kind of a magical mouse in a sense, you know? Oh, boy. Sometimes you say the most <laughs> unexpected things. It cracks me up. Okay. I'm glad you got the reference. Um, 
I mean, what a reference. I mean, I, hopefully people understand what it is. They've probably seen the movie. and They may or may not have read Mrs. Frisbee <laughs> and the Rats of Nim, but they've more than likely seen the uh, yeah, seen the Secret of Nim. Okay. Oh, man. Thank you, you for welcome. that. Made my day. I had a pretty terrible day. So oh, I'm glad day. I could help. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, we could potentially, yeah, I've got this magical realism. I also have... Uh, religion as mm-hmm. well and so i think they kind of all come together if, if we want to talk about yeah. that uh, there is no explanation of where he comes there's no explanation of where coffee's power comes and i i almost think because a lot towards the end especially a lot of it is ascribed to like a gift from god mm-hmm. and i think that that's certainly possible but i think it also depends on the perspective of the character because i think didn't delacroix talk about Oh boy, kind of something like voodoo esque. He kept mentioning and talking about. Something. I think so because Delacroix was was from like Louisiana. Yeah, so, so the, he was yeah, bringing up that. I, yeah, I can't Try remember what the uh, specific term was, but I think it almost depends on the perspective of the character. You know, because we did have some religious mm-hmm. characters in here, Christian wise, and then I think you had Delacroix. So his thought or perspective of where this would have come from would have been completely different with with the thing about jingles because this was actually something that the girls in the book club constantly were picking up like there's something about this character there's something about this character because he seemed the fact that he is super intelligent more so than i think you know an average mouse although it is possible that there's probably a mouse out there that is at at that intelligent Mm -hmm. but he seems to come at the right moment he trusts only particular people even at the end he only trusts paul really though i think he allows uh elaine maybe to i think he goes on her shoulder but it it seems almost like a comfort you know to those on e-block not only delacroix but also the guards too with the exception of percy to bring them joy and just like this fascination with this mouse and so in this terrible line of work where basically your job is to escort these people to die once it's their time he comes and and he brings some you know optimism or or positivity Uh, but it is interesting that you know the one question i just wonder is why does he go to delacroix of all people and uh you know this might point i you know i'm not saying that delacroix is a good person i'm not going to say that i he definitely made uh, some terrible mistakes but i feel like somewhere you know he might have like a good heart or you know if, if you can distinguish that the fact that he goes to him of all people cuz he could have gone to john coffee whom we know is also gentle though i guess delacroix came first right in the yeah yeah delacroix then yeah. coffee yeah but it's just he goes to him and he trusts him and when delacroix is killed or dies, I guess, depending on how you want to say it, Jingles leaves. Like, he may still be in the prison because I remember Paul and then somebody else, I can't remember who was with him, had found some of the uh, stuff that, that Jingles yeah, was used to play the, And the, the scent of peppermint because Delacroix used to feed yes. him peppermints. Yeah, so it all revolved around Delacroix. So it's just interesting to think, like, why did he come out then? What was it about Delacroix that, that Jingles was drawn it's, to? Yeah, well, and he's not drawn to coffee in that way. But coffee is innocent. Delacroix is not. So is it some sort of symbolism of 
absolution for his sins. I don't know. I'm trying to think of is there is there something more symbolic there, but maybe I'm just reading into it because then he gets, or there's there like some sort of cosmic approval of Delacroix via Mister Jingle's friendship with him, um, and and similarly Paul at the end, like there's a mm-hmm. a way of indicating that this is a good person. Uh, to put it way very very simply. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Because, I mean, certainly he avoids Percy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really take food from other yeah. yeah, other people, so potentially. And you're right in mixing up the, or, or combining the religious example, the religion, the mysticism, that with what we're talking about with magical realism, because it's done, that's done quite a bit in other works. Mm-hmm. And my AP students this past week, uh, a couple of weeks, their last story, short story for the year was by it was called the very old man with the with enormous wings and it's by gabriel garcia marquez and that's one of the big names as far as magical realism is concerned um an american author who we've who you and i have looked at at least once uh is tony morrison she does that and we talk about it when we do beloved um but like marquez it's this whole thing about this angel looking guy and and he he ends up in this village, and so there's a lot of religious symbolism in there max- mixed in with this uh, magical realism. So it's it's so King's pulling from from a literary tradition here. Yeah, uh, another tradition that he pulls from that is not as positive is the magical Negro. Yeah. Thing. And so I think we should talk about this because it's it's huge here. Uh, Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, good one. So it, it was a term, I think that was around, but it was popularized, popularized in 2001 by Spike Lee, mm-hmm. who talks about that. But basically, it is a trope created by white people. So there's the, the big thing there. Uh, typically, but not always, the character may be in some way outwardly or inwardly disabled, mm-hmm. either by discrimination, disability, or social constraint. Check. The Negro is often a janitor or prisoner. Mm-hmm. Check. The character often has no past, but simply appears one day to help the white protagonist. Yeah, but... We don't know too much about John, but yeah, we do learn. A he bit was more. kind of a drifter he, in in a sense. Yeah, and helped out mm-hmm. in a church. Yes, something collapsed, and he helped out. He or she usually has some sort of magical power, rather vaguely defined, but not the sort of thing one typically encounters. Check. The character is patient and wise, often dispensing various words of wisdom, and is closer to the earth. I, I think there's a. John Coffey is what we would have back in the day called mentally retarded. He's yes. mentally disabled. He is, I, yeah. I, I can't diagnose a specific disability, but you know, that's, that's the word that would have been used back then. However, at the same time, there is a, and perhaps this is an irony. There is a wisdom in, in him that I think they all see, or there's a, there's an insight they see or something that makes him wiser than he appears on the surface. Yeah. And he's tapped into something that is if it's spiritual, if it's earthly or whatever. So I think that's where you can you can actually apply that 
Yeah, especially if someone touches him, yeah. it seems, like with William yeah. Morton, or just when he was in the room with old Sparky, yeah. he was clearly in pain there. And then finally, the character will also do almost anything, including sacrificing him or herself to save the white protagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is, there's the trope right there. So, uh, I mean, by its, I think it's because it's used by white people, I think is, you know, one of the issues. Yeah kind of like the white savior complex. Mm. Um, and then I think also just because um, John's really not, he doesn't have control of his own fate. Like he is kind of pushed around and moved around by other characters that, that makes some of it, uh, you know, negative. But, uh, cause I think King has gotten some flack on this. I don't know that coffee's the only black, the magical, magical Nero trope he's used. There may have been someone else. In the shining. Um, oh. um, oh, yeah. Scatman yeah, Carruthers' yeah, character in the movie. Uh, what's the guy's name? Yeah. The 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 care not the care the cook. The is yep. I know exactly. Yeah, and in the about. film, in the in the his, his what happens to him in the novel is way different than what happens to him in Kubrick's Correct. film. I don't know if you watched the film yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so that and and because he, he gets he gets axed in the film like really quickly. Yeah. But yeah. So that that's that's another novel I can go right to The Shining with with King and the Magical yeah. Negro trope. So this is, it sounds like this was what you had talked about, that you liked this, but was yeah. a glaring thing. So do you want to talk a, a bit about this and just kind of the, and if we want to talk about positive negative aspects of John Coffey and his representation as, as connected. Well, I think this. we, I think we can. Yeah. But cause, cause this is what bothered me the most about the book. Um, and I, I, I knew a little bit about it going in because I just remember the trailers for the movie. And I remember that Michael Clark Duncan as John Coffey had the special powers or whatever. I didn't know what all of it was, but I do remember scenes from the trailer where he's touching, I believe, Tom Hanks. And there's like sparks flying around them or you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm picturing it in my mind. But I didn't realize like how much of the magical Negro he was. And uh, I this happens to dovetail with a, with a PD thing I'm doing on – we're reading a book called letting go of literary whiteness which is all about taking an anti-racist stance toward literature and how to essentially boiling it down to ways in which you can teach white students about race and racism in literature instead of like you know avoiding the topic or whatever and the one one of the discussions we were having recently was about Atticus Finch and the fact that Atticus Finch often gets criticized for being part of the white savior narrative and that Tom Robinson might not be the magical Negro because there's nothing really that supernatural about him. But there's that whole idea that like that that his fate was decided for him anyway. Like, you know, there was no way that Tom Robinson was not going to be found guilty and and Atticus kind of knows that going in, and then Robin, then Tom eventually dies. You know, spoiler alert: uh, he dies in, in a prison riot or, or an attempted escape or whatever uh, later on in the novel. It's been a long time since I read it, but I know that Tom Robinson dies. And here, John Coffey's fate has been decided for him, and he, despite mm-hmm. and they even have that. And, and Janice breaks down, upset about it. They have that discussion in the kitchen where they realize that. What can we – they have this what can we do about this discussion. You know, it's 1932. They have a black man on death row. Are they – is the state really going to believe them saying this guy has magical powers and we know who – and we actually know who did it? 
and you're condemning an innocent man to death. And even Coffee seems to know that he's not, you know, that he's going to die. And and now yeah. King sets it up as this sort of like, I think that's kind of where it gets me as well. It's like, you know, he's resigned to his fate, but in a way that like I, I want, uh, he wants to escape the cruelties of the world. So it's like almost a self-sacrifice, but it's sort of this, you know, putting this, this poor man out of his misery as, and it doesn't seem very strong at the end. So I think that's where I had the, you know, as I was reading it, I was intrigued by the story. I was like, this is really, I was just for King. It was really well-written and well-structured and his, his prose really, everything kind of snapped. It was really, really good, but this was the biggest problem I had with the book in that, in that he was way too much of this trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the only positive thing I could maybe pull from it is even though it falls into that de- the definition of the trope there that I had just gotten from Wikipedia, mm-hmm. is the fact that he is mentally handicapped. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it does talk like King is using a character and, and a character at that time that they would not, absolutely not have talked about that or there wouldn't have been any services or anything to help that. So in a way, I feel like he does at least address a problem that America would have had at that time. And so all these bad things that happen to John Coffey and that he's unable to really express himself. And of course, people don't give him the benefit of the doubt seems like realistic. So if only to address like a bad time period with honesty, I think that would be the only thing. But because it's nestled in with that trope, then it's just like everything mm-hmm. compounded, to, you know, to make the the magical Negro there. Yeah. Do you think it would have been different at all? <sighs> I don't know. The, the people that he would have saved like if they had been maybe you know if paul hadn't been well, i don't even know how he could have been black and been in charge there on the green mile mm, but had point any circumstances then. changed would it because he helps the mouse so that you know that kind of that you know that's different but both paul and melinda are white so i mean if any circumstances had changed if let's say you know john would have been white do you think some of like would it have changed the nature of this novel? Uh, I, you know, uh, on some level it would have, it would, I don't know. It would have been, it would have left as slightly less bad taste in my mouth because he's not going for the, the, the Negro aspect of it, the magical Negro aspect of it. But now granted, I'm grabbing this from TV tropes, which is the site that I fall down that rabbit hole all the time. They, they call it the inspirationally disadvantaged trope, uh, which is the, AKA the magical disabled person to go along with the magical Negro, the magical queer or magical native American, you know, this sort of, so the idea that the mentally handicapped person is somehow the source of inspiration for the, uh, protagonists way of changing who they are. And Steinbeck kind of inverts that in Of Mice and Men because George, he allows George to be frustrated with Lenny and really frustrated with Lenny. And as opposed to Lenny coming in and showing everybody how different everybody is. And there are other novels where 
the character is one of the, one or more of the main characters is mentally handicapped and or, or mentally disabled, and they toe that line. Like the curious incident of the dog of the nighttime is kind of towing oh. that line. It's such a great book, and it doesn't cross over that line because of the way the adults interact with the main character, because. You know, there's you could tell that they are affected by this person, but it's not in this sort of cheesy, magical way because it's it's presented in a very it's presented through his point of view. But it's still a very realistic per, just depiction of the adults in his world. But then you have um, the the image on the page on TV tropes is of Ben Stiller in the fictional film Simple Jack which is from the movie Tropic Thunder, which is that parody satire film where a bunch of them are in, a bunch of actors are sent into like the jungles of Southeast Asia to start a war movie. And, and uh, it has the infamous line, never go full R word because it's, it's, it's a satire of, of movies like, Oh, there's that Sean Penn movie. I am Sam. Yeah. Like it's parody movies like that or, or Forrest Gump. To come up with another, uh, to come up with a movie that is that is very much along the lines of the inspirationally disadvantaged, the magical, mentally handicapped person, because the the novel Forrest Gump is like the main character is much less likable than the kind of lovable guy that that Tom Hanks plays. So I, I think it would have. I don't. I so like. I think if if it if he had been white, it would have still been. It's still been annoying to me to a slightly lesser degree because you only have one trope instead of two shoved into the same character. But um, but it it didn't make me not like the novel, but I'm 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 bothered by it. And I what I see for this, though, is a way if, if you're in class with this, you're in a book discussion group with this is a way to ex- use this as an example to explore why this trope exists and what the classic examples are of it, like Jim and Huck Finn, a book that I can't stand, but that's one of the very classic examples of that trope or uncle Remus. And like some of the other, like let's look at the portrayal of African Americans through literature, through this lens and look at our own racism and telling these stories because we have been doing it for generations as white authors or white people and it's like, why? Why do we? Why is it when we have the heroic black character through a lot of literature, they are somehow there as some sort of magical, mystical character? And there are a lot of different people of color who are like this in, in, in white in white written literature, and they're they're really, you know, it's one thing to have a white a black protagonist who has powers and is the protagonist of the book and has character growth and agency. And solves the problems, but you they're your hero, right? It's one thing to have black Superman, so to speak, like you know that, but it's another thing to have <gasps> icon. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's one thing to have that, and and that's the character, you know, like to have the black superhero. But it's another thing to have the black guy with powers be a supporting character and only develop so much so that his grand purpose is to serve the white characters and. Twain does it a hundred years before this or more. It's I don't accept that because granted, because I can't stand that book, but, but it's, it's, it's bad there. 
it's actually pretty abhorrent here because it's 1996 and you think King would know better by now that like, you know, why are you having the big dumb black guy make all, all the magically cure all the white people? It's it's really, really bad. And so if you wanted a prisoner, if you wanted a prisoner who had powers, who's going to help you and you were going to see that this person you're going to see like, you know, I don't know, like who these prisoners are in terms of their humanity. Why did you make him black and mentally handicapped? Is that really, really necessary? And that, I guess that's the question I have for that, because that's what was bugging me through the whole thing. Not the fact that he had powers and not the fact that he was curing these things. I found that really interesting. The exorcist, the, the curing of the prison warden's wife, which is essentially an exorcism, is amazing. Like the way he describes her, it's like it, it's right up there with Linda Blair in The Exorcist. It's so scary in parts, and you're and you can I can see it in my head, and, I, and I'm like, wow, this is it's just so vividly done. And he cures her, and and it takes so much out of him. It is such a great scene, but like again, he didn't need to be black and mentally handicapped in order to do that. And so that's my that's my huge that's my huge issue with it. But I think we can. I think you could still use this, you know, again, like, why? <laughs> why? Yeah. So you think even taking one of those characteristics away would have changed it? Like if he had been of average intelligence? I think if he had been of average intelligence, it would have changed a little, little bit. But I think that I'm, I'm sure that you could have written that character to be to have a sense of innocence in a way that you could convey the same thing or something similar. It might have changed the story on a lot, on, on some level, but but the fact that like you know, Coffee kind of sits there and cries in his cell and doesn't really speak much here and there, and then finally things come out. I am sure that you could that you could have a man who's just been broken, has been completely just beaten down by whatever whatever it was that that had happened that he's been accused of. To the point where he has nothing left in him and doesn't talk very much because that's just that's it's just become part of his personality. You know, it's explained away in the with the mentally handicapped thing so that we can believe that he, you know, that he would be led along the way he is. I, and I, it would change the story because mm-hmm. I feel like he would have been able to better explain himself, you know, of why he's cradling these two girls or, you know, that kind of stuff. Though it may not have necessarily changed the outcome of the trial because they probably still would have convicted this black man that was cradling two dead bodies. But uh, at least it would have, yeah, it would have changed things. Do you feel like this trope is a way for white creators to give what they believe agency back to black characters so they're like trying to get away from the mark twain example and be like well it's not the same because see now he's got he's got his own agency because he's got these magical powers do you think that's where it has come from like they're trying to kind of they feel like it's a positive thing but they don't necessarily understand I mean, maybe this isn't the place for that, but I'm just trying to no, figure I, out, like, I, you're right, it is just like Jim, he is just kind of like this side character, but 
he's one up Jim because he's got magical power. So does you know King feel like it's actually not the same and it's better? I've given him agency. I, I think he does, and I think that he feels that he's um, yeah that uh, he's saving in some way. But at the same time, he's still serving the white characters. Like to the point where he lets them kill him because he just can't take it in the world anymore. And if he's if he's trying to make a point about racial injustice, it's not it, it's it's done in that Harper Lee sort of way where I get the point that's being made, but it could have been made with a lot more nuance or been given a lot more um, attention or or something. It's missing something because it feels. It feels a little lazy in places. And I think he's and I think by going to that trope, he's showing he's showing how in the very least on that spectrum of or that sliding scale of of how you have characters like this, laziness is on there and he's definitely dipping into that part of it at times because he doesn't you know, he, he if he wants to point out the injustice of the legal system and the prison system and the world of the South, because this is Georgia in 1932 during segregation and Jim Crow, he could do that. There is historical reference material. There are narratives on file. There is research you can do to pull from to give it a more full story. And maybe he's making a comment about how when we're all in the Green Mile, we're all everybody, all of them are equal. They're all prisoners, et cetera. But at the same time, it's just it, I don't think it's I don't think he sticks the landing, and because I don't think he's being nuanced enough, and he's 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 going for too simple of a by using that trope, he's going he's being too simple for it, and I think that's where it fails. Hmm. Okay, let's see here. What can we talk about? Well, I think you answered the question about uh, racial equality on the Green Mile. We could do the power of the sure. guards, or are you? The, did you write about Janice and Elaine? Yeah, I. Was yeah, I was kind of curious as to because they, like I said, they don't get necessarily fridged, but they do both die, and I was wondering, like, okay, so Elaine, Elaine's death, I think, is a little bit easier to explain than Janice's. So Elaine's death comes as that she is simply very old and it's to show the whole thing that you had mentioned in the synopsis. While he knows that everyone is bound to die, he laments his current state in which he must wait joylessly for his own death as though his life were but a longer version of the green mile. You know, it's, it's, he's going to die. He's just going to be very, very old, much, much older when he does. He's like 104. He's probably going to live another, you know, for all we know, another decade and seem like in good <laughs> health while the people he loves die. She just, so, so I understand that death. I was a little sad by it because I liked her character. Yeah. Janice, though, I didn't get, I didn't get why the brutal car crash and why the vision of John Coffey. What did, what did you glean from that? Yeah. <sighs> I, yeah, I don't know why exactly he did it. The only reasoning I think is, is a way for, cause it seems like the majority of people on that bus, died. Mm -hmm. there may have been a couple that he definitely survived and may have maybe had a bruise or a scrape. So I think you could have, it was kind of like, what was that? Unbreakable. Mm, yeah. Wasn't there a severe subway and then only yes. Bruce Willis was the one who survived? It's been a long um, time. So yes. I feel like, yeah. 
So I think that was another way to show that John Coffey's touch had um, given him, obviously, you know, durability mm-hmm. as well. The re- why killing her off, I'm not really sure because had you, he could have gone the same route of having. Janice died yeah. old age, but it's just like, and so it still would have been as heartbreaking because he outlived her, and I guess maybe he didn't age as much. I'm not really sure. I mean, the only thing with with John appearing, uh, it reminded me of, which I think I may have said before here, but it reminded me of when Melinda comes to. She says, "I had this dream. I saw you in the dark. You reached out for me. That sort of thing." So it's almost as if like John was there, like that similar moment of him going. Mm-hmm. Or it was like Paul looking, looking for John at that moment, like the one moment he really needs him to save his wife. Yeah. Right there. So it's that kind of thing uh-huh. too. But, you know, what's the purpose of having this deadly bus crash? I don't really know because you could have done it in, a, in another way. I mean, it, it would have been tragic either way, but this seems even um, worse just with this the only The only other thing I can think of is that if he had Janice die of old age and then, and then Paul's in the nursing home years and years later – I don't know if he would have struck up the relationship with Elaine because by then he might have accepted the fact that he, people around him are going to die and he would have kept his distance a little more. So there's a feeling of unfinished with Janice's untimely death and it's brutal because it's King. I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's, but I think your thing about John Coffey, him looking for John Coffey and him not being there is also a valid point as well. I think the only other two I see, I mean, we could talk about the death penalty, but is, yeah, the power of the gods mm-hmm. and then main uh, multiple antagonists. Okay. So I guess, I mean, as far as I see anyway. Sure. In the, <laughs> in the novel, it's said that the guards have no real power over the prisoners in the Green Mile. Do you feel like this is really true? I think so on some level. I think that... There's like a fate or inevitability working in the background when they're on the Green Mile for both the guards and the um, the prisoners. Like the prisoners all have a fate. It's all common. They're all going to get the electric chair at some point or another. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everybody in that situation seems to get what's coming to them. Because, you know, uh, Percy gets the the kiss from John Coffey that allows him to kill uh, what's his face. And this was coming. This was like, it was almost justified, you know, that like he killed, he killed Wharton and that was almost a better death than had Wharton been actually executed. Um, And then Percy, who was just a terrible, terrible person, uh, getting what he, you know, having eventually dying in this catatonic state, you know, after years in in a in a psychiatric hospital, you know, that's worse than being assaulted and killed or being transferred or whatever. He he gets something that was coming to him, and I think even Brad Dolan gets a little bit of a gets a little bit messed up at one point or another. But I'm not trying to remember trying to remember what happens with him at the end though. Well, he gets threatened by yeah. Elaine. Because she has connections yeah. to a politician so, or something. So there's that. Yeah. I. This leads me, actually, I, uh, I might change my last question. But with what you're saying, yeah, I feel like 
I mean, even in my synopsis, I said that, yeah, they're punishing Wharton, but Sanki changes his behavior. They can only do so much. Yeah. I mean, I think the real power on the Green Mile is Old Sparkle yeah. and the inevitability of death, unfortunately. And so they're just caretakers mm -hmm. for right now. And, and I mean, I think even in those moments of, I mean, really, William Wharton, I think, proves that just the fact that Dean was almost strangled and Percy was molested i guess we could say by wharton mm -hmm. as well yeah so i think that sort of proves that point. caretakers is a great word for it by the way yeah, <laughs> yeah i think that's a that's, really good way yeah. to put it instead of guards or anything caretakers is a very good way to put it yeah would you say that coffee killed wharton i don't i'm not a religious person but there's like a holy justice to that or some that whole situation or something you know, I, I, I don't I don't know how to describe it because, yes, it seemed like coffee murdered him or was the accessory or was the. Yeah, he provided the means to murder him by proxy through through Percy. But at the same time, it feels justified. Oh, sure. And yeah. so I can't call John Coffee a murderer because of why he was killing him. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think in some sense, yeah, he obviously did. But at the same time, there's mm -hmm. a, I don't know, there's like a, in enacting some sort of holy vengeance or something upon him that, that probably doesn't make much sense. <laughs> you yeah. study religion more than I have, but there's something very, you know, it ties into the magical realism aspect to it, both literally because he transfers his power into Percy and kills him, whatever. Um, he transfers the cancer into Percy, essentially. And, and has him do it. It corrupts him to the point where it has to do it. And so it's almost like he's putting the demon inside of him. But uh, but almost, yeah, that figurative sense. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, Wharton, if you think about it, is really the cause of Coffee's death. And so is basically... Yeah. <laughs> You know, one yeah. for one, I've I've just caused your death as well, that sort yeah. of thing. I mean, who knows? I mean, Coffee was clearly shaken when, after Wharton had touched him, with so knowing, I guess, all of his deeds. Yeah, and yeah, I wonder with Percy, I mean, it's not like Coffee mind-controlled Percy, though, because once those things were in there, it's like Percy was kind of his own thing, and Wharton had obviously done stuff to Percy, so could have been anyone i mean if delacroix were there i'm sure percy would have killed mm -hmm. him too but yeah that was certainly an interesting scene yes. the fact that it was transferred via kissing mm -hmm. i thought was really interesting as well because i think throughout there was kind of this fear of with P percy was just like he didn't want anyone thinking anything and and again he was molested he was accidentally touched mm -hmm. by delacroix so there's just this weird thing in the background of like literally homophobic just like this fear of of anything like that and so then to be kissed by a large black mm -hmm. man I'm sure was that <laughs> but that's a and and believe it or not though that that's king that's something very positive in a sense about that because men like that have this overwhelming homophobia and it's when yeah. when you fat when you think of everything about toxic masculinity and you think about the way these men and these boys act toward other men and boys, they are so afraid of seeming or being called or having something happen to them that could be slightly taken as 
gay, to use the word that they would use. Yet at the same time, sometimes ironically, they're the ones drawing penises on everything in in a, in a high school, um, or they're doing things that are like clearly like you know like i've seen i i just remember students of mine and and for to the point where we had to tell them to hey you need to keep your hands off each other because they would flick each other there and things like that and it's like yet yet if you implied that you know they were like the biggest homophobes in the sense so there's that sort of weird irony of that because they've been brought up as this sort of what manliness is is very hetero and percy clearly is that and percy's also overcompensating for the fact that he's kind of he's kind of a joke of a human being you know he he only got his job through nepotism and connections and he is a weasel of a man and so that that adds to it so i think king actually does a really good job with that in this uh in this book Mm -hmm. displaying that type of person and there's something about him also I can't really put my finger on, namely with the detail of how often he combed his hair. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really, I mean, I wasn't sure if, because King does not shy away from having gay characters. No. But I, I wasn't sure if there's some sort of like, are we supposed to think that Percy? Like, is, I, I, I don't know, is there something? Is he a latent homosexual? What's happening here? Or maybe it's just like how he presents himself, but it's just that detail pops up so much that it's trying to figure out kind of what, uh, maybe control on the outside, but there's not much control on the inside. Yeah, possibly, or, or the fact that, that he's so in, endeared to this idea of, of, of his own heterosexuality and what that, what that should mean for him and how tough he should be and everything, that, that there's, again, men and boys like that don't see the irony in some of their actions. They don't see that maybe touching each other on, you know, on in certain areas where they, they think they're have they think they're being funny or whatever. It's like, you know, have you ever actually thought of why you're doing that? Yeah. Not that grooming oneself is effeminate, but you know, that amount of care could be have a certain latent it might be a latent thing or it might be just the fact that he you know it's just it's it's ironic that he's so insistent yeah. that he's that he's no oh, I'm a man and you're like Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, when I thought of how it's described, it's not like I could see him as John Travolta, you know, in Greece or how the Greeks, you know, yeah. how they used to call it. I was like, I'm not getting that image. Or in Saturday Night Fever or something. Yeah, yeah. Which is so, well, that's the thing. And I think it's, I think you're, I think I was trying to describe it in a way that didn't make it seem like homosexuality was a negative thing. You know, I mean, because to, to Percy, it would be, but like, you know, right. but there, but you have a character like, a, like a Tony Monero in Saturday Night Fever, who is really of the, he's of the disco scene, which was very, um, now granted, Tony Monero is Italian and he's got, but he's got the, the big, the big seventies hair that he spends a lot of time on. He's got the really nice polyester shirt and the, and he's the he's a really good dancer, and these are things that you know the disco movement really uh, was associated with a lot of a lot of homosexuals and 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 a lot of people of color and things, and and so the backlash against disco was seen as very racist and homophobic, and it rightfully was. But there is that there is a little bit we could probably do a, we could probably do an examination of a movie like Saturday Night Fever and see like see the see a little bit of the acceptance or the even the inadvertent acceptance of things that are 
of OOA masculinity is portrayed to a certain extent because there's some really awful things in that movie. You know, the the style and adopting things that are that would be certainly considered um, slightly effeminate by some people <laughs> um, who per, who perceive themselves as, as you know the real man that type of thing. So I don't know where it's going with that. That's okay. Tangents. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think that's all okay. I have to discuss, okay. unless you think that the antagonist question would be worthwhile. Well, I guess it is a good. It is a good question. I mean, we know why Percy is so awful. Why have Why have Dolan be there as well? I guess <laughs> yeah. the the and, second antagonist yeah. I think is important because the first antagonist of Percy, I think, and of Wharton, and of those, there, there's the dynamic of what's going on between them is set up very well that I don't think we really question as to why they have these. He has these antagonists, but then when you get yeah. Dolan later on in the novel, why have later on in his life? Sorry, because he shows up pretty early. Why have him be antagonistic? And I'm used to, like, one antagonist, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. like, the main guy that's kind of popping in unless you've got, you know, Charles Dickens with, like, 20. But, yeah, uh, especially because Paul draws so many comparisons between Percy and Brad, which is really interesting. And I think part of it could be, between these two, the fact that Paul had power over Percy to a certain extent, because he knew that Percy had this superficial power of my, what, uncle is the governor? Yeah, something, something like, like that. But Paul, like, he heard it, and he was also warned by the warden and things like that, but he also could manipulate Percy and be like, listen, this is what you're going to do, and that sort of thing. Yeah, they tied him but up. But with Paul... Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, but Paul, later in life, he has a lack of power, and now he's on the receiving end of the Percy, a.k.a. Brad. He's almost the Delacroix in that situation. Mm. So it's like, yeah, showing a flip side of, of what it's like. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it just shows also the degree and, and how much Paul changed, I guess, or like old age, how that yeah. kind of does you in as well. And maybe it also helps him tell his story because he can tell the story of Delacroix alongside the story of John Coffey because he's essentially become Delacroix if he's taking care of the mouse. Yeah. Yeah. So so maybe that's where that's where it comes in that that now going through this now it's time to tell that story. Mhm. Yeah, very true. Oh boy, how interesting! I just imagined, you know, a prison novel. There'd be so many antagonists, but mm. it's, I liked more than I disliked yeah. of the characters on the Green Mile and the the guards. You know, you would expect guards to be abusive. You know, I'm thinking orange, you black, black, yeah, <laughs> or Oz. Yeah. You, yeah, you practically didn't like any of the guards, but these are decent human beings, with the exception. Uh, uh, with the exception of Percy and and how all of them want to help out melinda mm -hmm. how they also want to help out dean because they know that he has this new uh younger child and all of this by the way the way that king i'm a bit disappointed in how he writes off the end of all those guards because it's almost dismissive and how they all die like they protected dean for so long for they protected him so hard 
because of his younger child yeah. and then like he died a couple months later or something like that and all of these and he's like well that's he kind of just writes them he's, <laughs> done, really he's done that in other stories though okay. where he's just kind of done a where are they now or what happened to them the one that comes to mind is the body out of different seasons which was the basis for stand by me whereas as we're finishing up we find out what happened to Vern and Teddy and then we find out what happened to Chris um, where because in in the body he actually gives them Vern and Teddy actual final fates as opposed to in the end of Stand By Me Vern and Teddy just kind of walk off and he says they just became faces in the halls when we went into high school and then the way that friends just kind of leave your life after you're 12 years old you know you have friends but and then Chris is the one we find out which we found we knew from the beginning had died because the thing that prompts Gordy to tell his story is seeing a headline about Chris Chambers death in a newspaper and um, but we get a little bit more of the fates of the characters so it's, it's kind of a king it, it's, it's, it's a device he's used before so that's why I don't think it really it bothered me as much gotcha well uh, I think that's it okay. I think I mean I've tried to oh I see <laughs> hey, we got quite a bit out of this so I think so yeah. I think so I, first I was worried because well number one it took me so long to make the document but then i thought <laughs> oh i don't know if these are any good i can't come up with, uh, come up with as many as we could but yeah i think yeah, we got this <laughs> yeah we did it well i guess it's up to the listeners whether we, <laughs> we were successful but with the required reading question mm-hmm. so of course we've got the question is it required reading i also want to ask do you feel like this is required stephen king reading since he is such a prolific writer I'm on the fence about it being required reading overall. I thought it was very, very good. If somebody said, should I read this? I would say, oh, yeah, yeah, you'll give it a try. Um, I think it'd be required reading if you were doing like a unit on the magical Negro trope because I think yeah. you'd be – because it's a really, really easy accessible text. I know the I know the kind of creator of the whole trope is like Jim in Huck Finn, but – Again, like that's that novel's three weeks of my life. I'll never get back. So, like, you've got <laughs> this, and you've got a good example of this of this trope in that it's a very easily understood example. That's where I think it could be required because you could learn a lot from it, and you could read against it in that sense, you know, and 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 criticize it in that sense. Is it required, Stephen King? In my mind. <sighs> I'd say it's somewhere toward the top of the mid tier of what I've read of his because there are several books I would several books that I have read and still need to read that I would place above this and they're most of his horror stuff. It's a good book for people who want to read something by Stephen King but don't like horror. Yeah. Um, but like I would read uh, if somebody wanted Stephen King, I would hand them Misery, uh, Different Seasons, which has the Shawshank Redemption, which is a better prison story i would hand them uh the eyes of the dragon which is a really good fantasy novel it if they really want to be scared carrie is outstanding the shining is so good um i still have not read some of his big ones i still haven't read the dead zone or christine or pet cemetery or cujo uh so i I have uh, but but those are ones that like i go to immediately in my mind it's like oh those are the stephen king novels so i think i would i would there are several books i would put ahead of this on the list and yeah i would agree with everything you Mm -hmm. said and wouldn't add it i don't think it's required reading unless there's a purpose to what you're doing in class or whatever and then yeah if you're not into horror but you would like an interesting read and and want to get a feel of who Stephen King is as an author I think that this is a good read for you all right so we have some feedback 
Um, we have a feed, both are Facebook comments. One, the first one is from Martin Gray, or as Alan calls him, Sir, Sir Martin of Gray. <laughs> when he commented, he saw that we did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as episode 42 and then said, I see what you did there. And then our scholastic book buddy, Robert Ward, left us two comments. The first is regarding the thing we talked about at the end of uh, it was either episode. I think it was episode 42 about where we feel that a question of do you have a master list of uh, on the website of like what you covered in each episode. Uh, and he said, I actually m- once made a word doc master list listing all of the books and who chose them me or you he said i also included how i felt about them overall i'd have to look at the list again but the last time i looked at it stella edged out tom as the host of those <gasps> books or plays i considered the most vital or favorite how do you feel about that i'm fine with that <laughs> okay boy did that take a while um just a note from me there is a master list on the website uh if you go to required reading with tom and stella.com and there's a bar across the top. There's, you know, the, the blog, there's about us. And there's, I think there's just a episode list or something like that. And when you open it up, it is just a flat out list of the episodes with the titles and authors. And each of the episodes is a link. And that will take you to the specific post, uh, the show notes for the episode through which you can find direct downloads the links to the apple page the apple podcast or itunes page and the link to the true true freaks page as well so um it's a little more accessible just to figure out okay like you know, you know what did you cover in episode 13 i'm trying to remember and then you you know you go back and find out what it is whatever it was so so that is available and we will do our best to keep that up to date as we go along from month to month then Robert chimed in on Hitchhikers. He said, personally, I've always wanted to hear the radio version, but I haven't. I do have and read an omnibus that collects all of the books in the series, though. I've seen that. I've seen it in paperback. I've seen it in one of those really nice-looking Barnes & Noble special editions with like the gold leaf around the pages on the outside of the book. And he said, I even read the non-Adam sequel. And then he then said that he can only imagine, oh, he had a he had a picture of something called like a moose murder or something, a play called The Moose Murders. And he said, I can only imagine that this will happen if Stella keeps insisting on jokes about doing Ulysses. <laughs> well, it might have to happen. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, Getting through that once was enough. Yeah. Now, there are two books that have recently come out by authors we both covered. Now, I have not read The Ballads of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins, which is the Hunger Games prequel. Is it out I yet? I didn't think it was out don't yet. don't know if it is out. I think I it's there for actually, pre-order. Yeah. May 19th? Oh. Okay. So it just it came just out. Came it out. just came out. Well, when we're recording. As we're yeah. recording this. So it's, it's one that's on my wish list. If I don't get it for my birthday, I'm going to. Because my birthday. My ber- well, my birthday is just under a month from now. So as we're recording this, my birthday is June 23rd. So so I'm. it's on my list. If I don't get it, I'll get it for myself. Uh, but The Glass Hotel by M- Emily St. John Mandel, which has been out for a few months. Yes. Have you read that yet? I have. So I wanted to bring this up because I think it was Robert that 
said he had pre-ordered it or he was interested in it and then something happened and he wasn't as excited for it and so I picked it up digitally because now we're in this weird well the library is now open as it's opening back up yeah kind of yeah so I was able to get this digitally and I will say that it took me a while to get into it because it is not like Station Eleven. So don't go in thinking you're going to be reading Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. It is fragmented writing, in my opinion, um, though not as much as a book I just finished reading today. And it's kind of in, revolves around a Ponzi scheme. But I will say that it is connected to, it's in continuity with and in the same world as Station Eleven, okay. which shocked me once I got, because there's a character that they have in common. So it does have that connection. But yeah, it's, this one's all about like people's lives breaking down with this Ponzi scheme, and it just goes back and forth between different characters. There's kind of a main character, though, depending on what your definition is. Uh, but I of main character, but I would say like Station Eleven by far I I liked more though once I got to the end of the Glass Hotel I did enjoy it but it just took me a while because I was just trying to figure out what is this all about is one of those where you can't really tell what it's about <laughs> until you get to a certain point so that would be my only caveat there but yeah I mean if it's at the library mm. I would say give it a shot it's on my wish list as well I haven't read anything of of any. Uh actual literary significance other than because i just finished a john green novels oh okay yeah i read an abundance of catherine's over the weekend because it had it had been on hold it was on my goodreads to read list that it had been on hold that it fine i finally got the overdrive loan so uh that was that was pretty good so I don't think it's one I'd discuss in the show i think i'd pick a different one of his novels if i was going to go for that so which is not what i'm going to pick Okay. So, so I guess I can reveal the, one with the turtle. As long as you don't pick Paper Towns, I'll be okay. No, I, I, I liked that up until a point because I wasn't the most satisfied with the ending. I liked the whole concept of it. I think that would be a really good book if you were studying the trope of the manic pixie dream girl and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was, that was uneven. Uh, Looking for Alaska was pretty good. I haven't read The Fault in Our Stars or Turtles. Was Turtles All the Way Down, I think, is one of the most recent. So. Um, at any rate, no, that's not what I'm picking. I guess I could get to our pick for next I episode. Think, yeah, I guess that's it. All right. Yeah, so, Tom, what are we reading next Yeah, time? so we're going to, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, and we are going to be reading a, a novel by Barbara Kingsolver called Prodigal Summer. So that will be that will be out for our July episode, which <gasps> appropriately is in the summer. So there, there you, you go. So until then, don't forget to go to our website and check out the show notes. You can also hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Send us some feedback, please. We really like getting it. Even if it's on past older episodes, we will certainly answer questions on there. And as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. And if you ever see a mouse, be sure to have some peppermints in your pocket, just in case. And a spool. And a spool, yep. All right, good night. Goodbye. Lobos. Hello, John. I guess you know we're coming down to it now. Another couple of days. 
Anything special you want to eat for dinner that night? Can rustle you up most anything. Meatloaf be nice. Mashed taters, gravy, okra. Maybe some of the fine cornbread your missus make, if she don't mind. Now, what about a preacher, somebody to say a little prayer with? Don't want no preacher. You can say prayer if you like. Me? Suppose I could if it came to that. John, I have to ask you something very important now. I know what you're going to say. You don't have to say it. No, I do. I do have to say it. John, tell me what you want me to do. You want me to take you out of here? Just let you run away? See how far you could get? Why would you do such a foolish thing? On the day of my judgment, when I stand before God, and he asks me why did I, did I kill one of his true miracles, what am I going to say? That it was my job. It was my job. You tell God, the Father, it was a kindness you done. I know you're hurting in word. I can feel it on you. But you ought to quit on it now. I want it to be over and done with. I do. I'm tired, boss. I'm tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. I'm tired of never having me a buddy to be with. Tell me where we's going to, coming from, or why. Mostly I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and hear in the world every day. There's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. Can you understand? Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? 
If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.